Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hi, it's Tom here. The show is just about to get started, but before that, I'd like to say a massive thank you to everyone, to all of our readers and our listeners who support us and donate to us. I know we do this every week, but we really really mean it. And it's been particularly amazing to see people sign up over the past few weeks amid all of this coronavirus madness and crisis and uncertainty. And it's because of all of you that Spikes can keep going, that we can remain free for everyone to be able to read us if they so wish. We really do value your generosity and your support, not least given all that's going on in the world at the moment. So to those who give, thank you. And if you don't give, but you'd like to, and you can afford to, then do go to spiked-online.com and click on that big red donate button in the top right corner. One-off donations are greatly appreciated, but as you all know by now, I'm sure even better for us is that regular donation. Even £5 per month can have a huge impact on our work. So thanks again. I hope you're all staying safe and staying sane out there. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me as ever, we have Spike's Deputy Editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, what coronavirus means for the EU, Sweden's alternative coronavirus strategy, and the UK's overzealous coronavirus cops. Across Europe, almost 460,000 people have been infected with this virus. The spread of coronavirus has shut borders across Europe. With three quarters of deaths occurring in Spain or Italy. Has the EU failed certain countries? One idea that isn't coming to life, something called Eurobonds. The virus is sucking the life out of Italy. Europe has been at the centre of the coronavirus pandemic for weeks. Italy and Spain have the highest numbers of COVID-19 related deaths worldwide. So what does the crisis mean for the EU? Jacques Delors, one of the architects of the modern EU, has warned that the continent's handling of the crisis poses a mortal danger to the future of the Union. Tom, what have you noticed about the EU's response or, or lack thereof? Well, I think it's been really striking. It has really kind of called into question the whole point of the European Union, at least how it was sold to us over in, in recent years. And you made this point in your article, Fraser, but really the most kind of immediately effective and positive things the EU has done in response to the early weeks of the coronavirus crisis is to just kind of get out of the way, you know, is to allow nation states to spend as they see fit. You know, Schengen being suspended actually in the middle of what, its 25th birthday, I think I'm right in saying, which I think is kind of interesting and significant. You know, it was kind of loosening the straitjacket, which was, was the most um, positive thing that it could possibly do in these situations. And I think that's quite significant, especially given the fact that, you know, as we've become accustomed to, the idea is that supranational anti-democratic institutions like the EU are supposed to be precisely what you need to meet global crises and global problems. Mm. And yet we've seen little indication of that so far. Now, some people who might disagree with us on the EU question might suggest a bit of a contradiction here as far as, you know, making the argument for a very long time that the EU is in many respects a restrictive and oppressive institution. But I think, you know, if anything, I think what we're seeing recently is that it is oppressive and it can act in oppressive ways. We have seen that in recent history, but it's also incredibly dysfunctional. Mm. So you see in the case of, say, Italy, you know, in the early weeks of this crisis, Italy really being the European epicentre of all of this, when it tries to invoke mechanisms in order to get more medical supplies from other European member states, that is a call that is completely unanswered. So one area in which you would imagine that the membership of this organisation might pay off, it's just completely absent. Yet at the same time, again, in the 
early weeks, you see the European Court of Justice meet down this ruling and punishing Italy and fining it for state aid interventions it made um, in the hospitality in- industry in Sardinia. So you see this kind of profound dysfunction on the one hand, but also inaction in other areas where you think it might otherwise want to assert itself. And I think it's just really kind of calling into question, as I say, the kind of what we were led to believe was the point of institutions like this, which is that, yes, you pull your sovereignty, i.e. you dilute your sovereignty, but that's because when, you know, the proverbial shit hits the fan, you can look after one another. And we're seeing no evidence of that. So far, we're seeing a lot of dysfunction, a lot of squabbling, um, and not a lot that seems to be helping out those member states which really are in trouble at the moment. Ella? That point about the sort of destruction of the illusion that the European Union is the glue that binds all you know the relationships of European nations together is is trash it's just it's been revealed to be false particularly because you you know the fact of this and the consequences of this virus have revealed the deep inequalities between European nations so mm. i mean there is a reason why there are huge amounts more people dying in italy than there are in germany it's because Italy is far, far poorer than Germany and people who are living in particular in the parts of the areas in which are worst hit in Italy. Some of them before this virus were destitute. So during the Brexit discussion, I remember one of the main arguments for the European Union was this, it was this kind of wonderful, holistic grouping of you know, people who were all the same. And actually, when it comes to a crisis point like we're at at the moment, you realise, no, we're not all the same, not just politically, but actually in terms of serious things like the wealth of a nation. And so a kind of broad brush, holistic approach is not appropriate. And not only that, but the, actually it goes far as to say the kind of callousness um, with which the European Union has acted. It hasn't been shocking because I think people like us who have argued that this is an institution um, that doesn't live up to the kind of loving reputation it holds among some Europhiles. But, you know, the the way it's responded to Italy, that ECJ ruling that Tom mentioned, but also, you know, the knock-on effects of things like the European Union's immigration policy didn't cause the migrant crisis, but the knock-on effects of it, for example, camps that are still in existence across Europe, are places where we can expect to see the virus kind of rip through and people are going to die in, you know, in camps in Lesbos and other places. This problem is going to be ongoing. And so I think that one thing we have to take from all of this, and it's been quite remarkable that even the most, some of the most pro-EU commentators are saying that it's very hard to see how the European Union is going to survive this because of its, not just its ineffectualness, but actually the revealing of that it is not this I love EU, wonderful kind of caring institution, but that it's a cold, hard capitalist grouping, which essentially doesn't give a crap if people in Italy are dying in their thousands, but wants to maintain its kind of political supremacy. So could it be a positive point that at the end of all of this, we might see more Eurosceptic behaviour? Possibly. Uh, That's one kind of a silver lining, perhaps. Certainly in, in places like Italy, people are really starting to unite against the European Union across the political spectrum. You know, it's, it's now not just the populist right who are saying the EU is, is useless and, um, needs to get out of the way. I'm glad you brought up the migrant crisis, Ella, because I think it's, it's worth looking back at, um, at former crises where the EU has essentially muddled through rather than solved these issues. And, and the big one being, of course, the, the Eurozone debt crisis 
which was essentially solved, quote unquote, by forcing austerity onto onto Greece and onto Italy, the effects of which are still being felt to this day. And in terms of, you know, when these countries are expected to come together to form a solution to coronavirus and in particular the economic impact that it's having of people shutting down their societies, of the entire European economy essentially being suspended for months on end, it's clear that a lot of the divisions that were created in that period or that were emphasised in that period still linger on. So one of the flashpoints in particular is, is over this issue of so-called corona bonds. And it's whether Italy, backed by countries like France, Spain and, and others, has called on the European Union to basically create a kind of collective bond, you know, Really, it would be based on the kind of creditor nations uh, like Germany and their and their worth um, in order to sort of bail out the countries that are suffering most under this crisis. But perhaps what's different about this crisis is that people are, especially you know, in in the kind of frugal four, certainly mm. in the media, among diplomats and things like that, are starting to wake up to the fact that if Italy collapses, it brings the whole thing down. And so you know, every time that there has been quite a kind of callous or dismissive response to Italy's plight, it's had to be rowed back very quickly. So Christine Lagarde basically suggested that it's not really her job mm. to shore up Italian bonds, which unsurprisingly provoked a, a run on Italian bonds and, you know, sent their borrowing costs soaring. She had to apologise and then launch a massive kind of quantitative easing programme to make up for it. Mm. Ursula von der Leyen, you know, was quick to dismiss the Corona bonds idea, even though it hadn't officially been put off the table. And again, the EU has had to apologise for that and make reassurances. And even, you know, the Netherlands, they have come in for so much stick for their opposition to this, that they have now had to turn around and, and say that they want to give Italy an unconditional gift, because they're starting to recognise that if this, you know, particular mm. card in the House of Cards fall, it's not like Greece. You know, the Eurozone could weather a Grexit. It cannot weather an Italy, mm. especially at a time of, of crisis, because it, it would sink the whole ship essentially. I think you're right. I think the mood is slightly different because over the weekend, as there were these kind of brief rows over the multi-annual financial framework and the question of the kind of economic response across the Eurozone, it did for a moment feel like this is like the Eurozone crisis redux. You know, things mm. were just kind of, the debate was forming across those lines between the South and the North. And you thought, if they haven't learned any lessons from this, this is looking quite terrifying. That being said, I think some of the, as you say, the backtracking we've seen, as well as the interventions from Jack Delors and others, I think there is a recognition of the seriousness of the crisis that's confronting them because this is not unique to Europe of course but you know there is this combination of a huge public health crisis and the economic crisis which is accompanying it you know it really does have the potential to make the the previous crises we've seen in Europe look like a tea party by comparison mm. so there is this kind of you know there is a bit of a waking up to it but I think it's just on the broader point I think it really does call into question the kind of fundamental point of what the EU is and it is bringing to the surface all of its dysfunctions and all of its shortcomings in such a profound way that it's very difficult to work out how it actually survives this. You know, I take no relish in saying that. There's going to be a hell of a lot of terrible things down the road for a lot of people in Europe as a consequence of all of this. But I just don't see it going any other way. You know, there's, there was this poll out a couple of weeks ago in Italy. 
88% of Italians felt Europe was failing to support Italy, 67% saw EU membership as a disadvantage. And, you know, there's been this kind of pretty pat argument and take recently that coronavirus kind of puts to bed populism. Mm. And that argument, I think, is usually made in a very reductive understanding of the current moment or the moment up until the coronavirus crisis, that it was just fundamentally about a kind of global endarkenment. It was about being anti-expert, anti-expertise, relativistic, post-truth, all that kind of stuff, which is fundamentally not true and never was. I think that the thread that connected all these different populist revolts was a belief in accountability and the nation state. And I think what we've seen even in these early few weeks is that in the midst of this coronavirus crisis across Europe, is that the nation state is not only the only kind of legitimate structure through which countries can respond to these crises, can take extraordinary measures and still maintain a level of accountability. It's also the only kind of body that can, in some respects, you know, that has that nimbleness and the ability to act and to act, as I say, with legitimacy. So again, I take no relish in seeing how this all pans out, but it is very difficult to work out on all these different kinds of levels how the EU makes it out of this in one piece. It's important to be able to contrast the speed with which uh, nation states were able to act, even while they were in the EU, Mm. with the, you know, the sluggishness of, of the EU itself. So Britain and the Bank of England were responding to this crisis two weeks ago and, and lots of European countries were, were, you know, started fiscal stimulus programs in order to kind of weather the crisis. But in terms of monetary policy, the last meeting basically agreed to disagree at the weekend and we might get a response in two weeks time as to how to deal with, you know, Italy's mounting debts and which is going to be followed by Spain, which is going to be followed by France. So, it really has highlighted just the sheer dysfunction of of the system. Mm-hmm. Ella? One thing I am slightly worried about is the growing trend towards not quite nationalism, but protectionism in terms of, I think it's a positive thing that it's been revealed that the European Union is not the magic institution that makes all nation states you know, become international and and outward looking. But one thing to keep an eye on, I just think, is that obviously there's a lot of hoarding going on and countries are feeling Mm. very vulnerable and shutting their borders and refusing to export masks, for example, refusing to reach out to others. And that's not a good trend. And um, while there's sensible things to be done to stop the spread of coronavirus politically, I think that it's important for people who are truly international beyond the kind of pretense of EU internationalism to suggest that a a future post-coronavirus has to reject the perhaps the desire to close off, shut down and become insular because without sounding cliche, this is a global pandemic and the response but also the aftermath of it has to be international. You're listening to the Spike podcast. Spike has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spike, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spike a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Around a third of the global population is currently living under lockdown as governments take extraordinary measures to contain the spread of coronavirus. Sweden is one of the few countries in Europe to have resisted these kinds of measures. 
Even its Scandinavian neighbours, Norway and Denmark, have closed their borders and placed strict restrictions on everyday activities. We're joined down the line by Natalie Rothschild, a journalist based in Stockholm. Natalie, it's Thursday afternoons we record. Um, can you tell us a bit about what the situation is like in Sweden at the moment? Uh, I'd say the situation is pretty dire, actually. Um, I guess everything is relative, but we still have um, you know, a situation where we're facing mass unemployment. Whole industries are at a standstill. Markets have been <laughs> crashing. The economy is in free fall. Lots of people have had to change the way they live, their everyday lives, working from home, not seeing elderly people and so on. And yeah, obviously there are limits on traveling, even if borders are not entirely shut. It's very difficult to travel at the moment. But in general, I mean, it is it is more open and people have kind of, I suppose, the characterization of it as open for business, I suppose, is, is wrong, as you've illustrated. But it, it hasn't gone down the same kind of path as, as everyone else. Is that noticeable? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to compare on a personal level since I'm only here and can't go anywhere else. But I think a sort of caricatured image has emerged in international media, this open for business line, which I'm aware was in the headline of an article I wrote, but, uh, you know, we're often not responsible for uh, the titles of our articles, the editors are. But life is not, you know, what it was three weeks ago. But obviously, compared to other European countries and uh, countries uh, beyond Europe, we're still pretty free. I mean, the most noticeable difference is that there is no quarantine. There's no enforced quarantine. We don't have a limit on the number of walks we can take every day. And most of the measures that have been taken are formulated as recommendations uh, rather than uh, legal impositions, with a few exceptions. Uh, for instance, there's now a restriction on public gatherings of 50 people or more. It was 500 to begin with, and they lowered it to 50. And high schools and universities are closed. Uh, they're doing remote teaching, but other schools and preschools are still open. Tom? I was just wondering about what the kind of debate within Sweden is like at the moment. Is there a lot of pressure for the government to go much further, for more restrictions to be brought in? And if so, where is that kind of pressure coming from? Because I think I've read in a couple of places that almost the inverse, it feels like, as to what we're experiencing here in Britain. It's often people on the left or the liberal left who tend to be more um, in favour of this slightly less restrictive measures, as you say, whereas it's people on the right who are calling for more of a clampdown. Is that a fair characterisation or what really is the state of the debate in that respect? It's it's kind of strange how this issue has turned into a left-right issue when it's, you know, a question of uh, public health and uh, a pandemic. But people, you know what it's like when people place their stakes in the public debate on, on social media and in, uh, in opinion pieces and so on, they feel pretty strongly about kind of digging themselves further in the trenches and then people are sticking to their positions. But I think the the more interesting contrast is between the debate, very fierce debate that's going on in media and social media, uh, where there's a lot of distrust in the public health agency, which is front and centre of Sweden's strategy to, to combat this virus, and the approval ratings that the public health agency is receiving in opinion polls, where the public actually has apparently a strong uh, level of trust in, in the public health agency and in its outlier strategy. Ella? I've read this article in The Guardian from someone who's living in Malmo and the point they were making was that, you know, this is a country that has a lot of 
respect and belief in its experts. It's that's what it's kind of known for. It's got a very sensible approach. And as an observer, while many other European countries and the media within many other European countries was clamoring for a lockdown, it seemed like actually there was a more thoughtful argument coming out of the experts in Sweden that were saying, you know, you implement strict measures when it matters because the understanding is that you can't keep people in isolation or quarantine or some form of lockdown for a long time. I mean, has that has that changed? Because from what you've said, it now sounds that actually things have become a lot stricter uh, quite suddenly. It's not that they've become stricter, but obviously they're adding, as the situation kind of escalates, they're adding uh, recommendations Remember, these are not legal uh, requirements. We don't have emergency legislation and that kind of thing. So, for instance, from this week, there's a ban on visits to elderly homes. And as I said, the public gatherings, the the maximum number was lowered from 500 to 50. But still, relative to other countries in Europe and beyond, that's still pretty tame. So the recommendations become stronger as, as the situation escalates. But I think what's hard to get across even within Sweden, is that the approach to this is very much in line with some traditions that are quite specific to this country. And so, for instance, we have a ban on uh, ministerial rule, which exists in Sweden, also in Finland, because Sweden and Finland uh, were once the same country, uh, and doesn't exist, for instance, in neighboring uh, Denmark and Norway. And that means that even though the government sets the remit for public agencies, like the budget and appoints the head and so on. Beyond that, they're not allowed to meddle in the day-to-day proceedings of those public agencies, of which the public health agency is one. And there's also a strong tradition of politicians leaning on their expertise and an expectation that they will follow their recommendations. And so what people on one side of the argument have been saying here is that we're just following that tradition, whereas in other countries it's become much more political. It's politicians making the decisions. And mm-hmm. here it's as if the public health agency is is almost a political entity. They make recommendations and the government has, until now, chosen to follow the, those recommendations and they're very much like, in dialogue with each other. So that's one thing. The other thing is that Sweden is uh, what's called a high-trust society and That also goes for the other Scandinavian nations. This is something that's been measured in surveys and so on. It means that there's a high level of trust, mutual trust between public agencies and citizens, but also a high level of interpersonal trust. There's a kind of faith that people will uh, follow the advice and recommendations of agencies and uh, and expectations on fellow citizens that they will act responsibly too. But actually, what's kind of interesting is that a few days ago, it emerged that a large number of those who've died from COVID-19 are from communities like immigrant-dense suburbs. So it was a high number of Somalis who actually died. Obviously, they have a different lifestyle, a different culture, where, for instance, they have intergenerational living, they live um, more tightly together, they might not partake in information in Swedish, uh, in Swedish media, and they do not come from societies that are marked by a high level of trust. So you can't take for granted that that very ingrained culture that has existed in Sweden for a long time is something that will be automatically adopted by everyone 
who who lives here. I think it's also important to look at the facts on the ground in terms of Sweden being a country of 10 million. We're a small mm. country uh, compared to the UK, or for instance. Uh, it's quite sparsely populated. The largest number mm. of cases is in Stockholm, which obviously is the most densely populated place. But even then, the capital city has an, a million and a half people. We have the highest number of single households in the world. And there's no tradition of intergenerational living, not much crowded housing situations and that kind of thing. So we also have better kind of premises from which to act in a more liberal, let's say, or more allowing manner, in addition to the, the norms and the cultural attitudes and this mm -hmm. tradition of independent public agencies and that kind of thing. So we have advantages that other countries don't have in that sense. And also the fact that, you know, it's kind of a antisocial culture. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, social distancing is not as much of a, uh, you know, issue here as it might be in, you know, Italy or more warm-blooded. <laughs> Tom, do you want to throw in a final question? Well, I suppose it would just be interesting to get your sense, Natalie, of where things might be headed next. You know, do you see Sweden going down more of that kind of authoritarian path? You know, where do you see the next few weeks kind of panning out as much as any of us can predict anything at this point? And there are so many armchair epidemiologists <laughs> out there. I don't really want to join the, the numbers, but I, I really don't know. I think I, I kind of swing from you know, one morning I wake up and think, oh, you know, Sweden's doing the right thing. And the next day you're sort of inundated with information. You, you look at all the curves and you, you know, think, oh, we're now where Italy was so and so many weeks ago. Is this really the right thing? And, you know, it's, I, I find it really difficult to know. But I think what the authorities, I mean, for me, one of their biggest mistakes was not communicating all of this uh, in a very clear uh, manner to start with. And so now that they're being questioned by international journalists and also by Swedish journalists who, who don't really get what their strategy is. They've had to actually formulate what I was just talking about in terms of, you know, how uh, Sweden has a ban on ministerial rule and how, we, you know, we trust people to follow recommendations and act responsibly and do their duty and, and, and have a sense of solidarity and that kind of thing. They've actually started to be more explicit about that. And so the conversation has kind of shifted to acknowledge those factors, whereas before it was just a kind of disbelief in what do we know that all these other countries don't know and that kind of thing. And even people who are very familiar with and born into this culture weren't really getting what they were doing and why. And so they've become a lot clearer in their communication. But I, I still can't judge whether it's the right way to go or not in all instances. But obviously, I very much appreciate not being locked in. Uh, I mean, I work from home, but I can go out. And if I do feel like it, coffee shops are open and that kind of thing. Obviously, that's very nice. And I, I do hope that we don't go down the same route that other countries have done in terms of severe restrictions on freedoms. The time will tell. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show.
The British police have come under increasing criticism for their zealous enforcement of the coronavirus lockdown. The National Police Chiefs Council and the College of Policing have issued new guidance calling for more consistency in how officers across the country enforce the rules. Meanwhile, former Supreme Court Justice Lord Sumption has warned that the UK was sliding into a police state, with police enforcing rules that have no legal basis. Ella, what are your thoughts on the, some of the police behaviour we've seen over the past week? Well, at first I was, when you heard stories coming out about the police taking certain measures a bit far, you had this kind of caveat where I kept saying to myself, well, it's not like a police state and people are going a bit far in claiming that it is. And then (laughs) you started to see news stories of, for example, the big one was Derbyshire police who followed joggers round with a drone, Mm. uh, posted the video on Twitter, basically singling people out, putting up pictures of people's number plates um, and arguing that people were taking exercise unnecessarily or unnecessary distances from their home. Lord knows how they knew that was the case. And the background justification of all of this was that a couple of weekends ago, there was, before the lockdown, quite a large number of people going to nice beaches, nice areas and uh, going for walks. And so there was this suggestion that people weren't listening to the advice. But the response has been, I think, completely over the top and uh, not quite because we're seeing police sort of battering people back into their homes just yet, but that there has been this quite frightening relish with which the police have welcomed the strengthening of their powers, Mm. posting videos on social media, warning people that they're going to get these new fines that Pretty Patel has allowed them to institute if they are out without the kind of correct purpose. You can get into trouble if you refuse to talk to the police about the reason why you're out. Even anecdotally, I think most of us will know that you can hear outside your window, there's far more police out. I'm hearing sirens all the time. You have this difficult situation in which you've extended powers to the police and the authorities so far under the guise of this very positive, friendly, community-spirited type way. And I suspect that it's going to be very hard to row them back. And actually what the underlying narrative of all of this is, the public can't be trusted, even though we're shown that the numbers of people taking public transport have dropped and people are staying inside and everyone's coming out you know, once a week to clap carers from their balconies. Despite all of that, the public can't be trusted. And so we have to get the police out to gently or not so gently coerce them into staying indoors. Maybe it's not quite living under a police state yet, but, you know, time will tell. I don't think we're far off and uh, that frightens me. Tom, what are your thoughts? Well, I thought it was just interesting, particularly over the course of the weekend and going into Monday, that you had all of these people, all of these journalists who had spent the past week or more clamouring for Britain to become basically a full-on police state were just slowly waking up to what the police are actually like, or at least what you know anyone is actually like when you hand them a hell of a lot more power and a hell of a lot more kind of moral responsibility to you know kind of enforce these new laws, regulations, and and guidance which has been rolled out in relation to coronavirus. And you know there was obviously it's um, important that we don't kind of focus too much, I think, on kind of ridiculous examples. You know, I'm sure there's many people who are being quite sensible, but at the same time, the nature of the restrictions have been brought in is that they rely a lot, and the government guidance actually says this, on police exercising discretion and common sense. Mm. And the problem is there's always going to be people who do not exercise that kind of discretion (laughs) and common sense. I think it's worth drawing out one of the points that Sumption made, which I think is really important, which is 
in the course of the past week, there's been this kind of blurring of the lines between the letter of the law and just government diktat, effectively. So, for instance, there was a lot of discussion around people potentially having their collars felt, for, you know, going out for that second jog or going to drive to a beauty spot in order to do your exercise rather than doing it close to home. There's actually nothing in the new regulations that were brought in last Thursday that makes that illegal whatsoever. So there is a pr- problem with kind of overreach here. Yet that was the guidance that the government gave. Michael Gove quite clearly over the weekend suggested that that's what they would prefer us to do. So we're in a situation here where you have the police effectively enforcing the will of government diktat rather than actually the letter of the law. That's a really, really concerning thing to happen. But also the nature of these new powers is that they're so blurry that it does allow this to take place. And one point that David Allen Green made on his blog, which I think was quite interesting, was that on the one hand, it's not necessarily illegal to, again, you know, be out of the house and not to have a sufficient reason if, you, if again, you're going on that second jog or whatever. But still, a failure to comply with the police demanding that you go home because they've dis- decided that you should, mm. that then you could get yourself into real trouble. So, again, at what point does this become, you know, a bit of a... Uh, a non-distinction almost in some respects. This, it relies so much on, on police discretion, it seems like. And again, I think we're just coming back to that kind of question of when we were talking about emergency powers, when they were talking about bringing these new powers in, those of us who raised our concerns about this, while saying that we understand that in times of crisis, things like this are going to be necessary in certain circumstances, were just held down as like ridiculous and alarmist and, you know, over the top. And yet within hours, a lot of our worst prognostications were kind of coming true mm. to almost comical extent in some in some areas. So I think this again just shows how much society has moved so quickly, how much so many of our, our kind of norms have been upended and how important it is that, um, you know, regardless of what you think about the rights and wrongs of particular powers, of particular regulations, that we maintain constant scrutiny of this kind of thing because, you know, we're not that far into this and already we're seeing a lot of alarming warning signs. Ella? We've talked previously about the real nastiness about anyone that raises any kind of questions or criticisms about the measures that are being taken to fight coronavirus, particularly online. You know, it's like you're evil if you say, hang on a minute, I think maybe this new thing that the government's brought out might warrant some debate. Mm. Um, But particularly in relation to the police, I mean, I think we have to (laughs) maintain this sense in the country, not of, you know, it's not to say you should go out and rebel for the sake of it, but maintain a sense that this is wrong. This is, this is, not a good way to live. This is horrible. It's unpleasant being in this situation. I don't like the idea that if that the prospect of being stopped by a police officer, if I go out for a morning walk, um, but it's actually really important point to keep that sense of what is normality alive mm. by continuing to question these things. Yes, do the social distancing. Yes, listen to the government. And, you know, I, I don't think we're quite living in a police state yet, but I think we need to continue that pushback against this increasing a sort of authoritarian intervention into our lives because what you want to happen at the end of it is that all of these powers get wiped away that the minute we're allowed to come out of this period of sort of quasi-isolation that the police get back in their box and are not allowed to ask me why I'm outside so maintaining that spirit of dissent that spirit of you know keeping in touch with the reality we had alive just three weeks ago when (laughs) none of this was happening, I think is really important. Otherwise, we are going to end up in a prolonged period of police intervention into our private lives.
You've been listening to the Spiked Podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.